0: Behind the noise with Adam Bornstein. Behind the noise, behind the noise.
1: Episode 4 Behind the Noise Podcast. This is Adam Bornstein. I'm your host. It's Monday, February 24th, 2020. So I'm not sure if you're able to hear the chanting, but it's coming from the Orthodox Church in the background couple blocks away from our house. Today marks the beginning of Orthodox Great Lent, which is the fast of 55 days. It ends on April 19th, which is Orthodox Easter. One of the many qualities that my family and I have come to really appreciate about Ethiopia is the authenticity of the faith across multiple communities, regardless of religion. Indeed, in the order of um, how people recognize themselves in Ethiopia, it would be first as an Ethiopian and then second by your religion um, and that typically plays out in your community and the tribes that you're part of the government has been putting off um, a census the latest census for for a year and it coincides with elections that are due this year i think there's a lot of questions around what actually are Ethiopia's demographics and i think that's something to definitely keep an eye on to see how that plays out over the next nine months. So on to this week's podcast. Our special guest this week is William Hines, head of the New Approaches to Economic Challenges Unit at OECD. William and I discuss how traditional economic theory, which strives for market optimization, inherently overlooks and fails to address social environmental resilience. Over the course of the podcast, we get into new modalities, such as complexity, agent-based modeling, and the recognition that we should be thinking about the resilience of economies and societies rather than the triggers. I think this last point may challenge the growing interest and investment in trigger and forecast-based humanitarian interventions. This episode should be of interest to my humanitarian colleagues, given the increasing number and duration of operations sparked by shocks, like social, environmental, and conflict, in one country which ultimately impact entire regions. So, join us as we go to the heart of the issues and get behind the noise. Episode 4. The Danish Red Cross's award winning innovative finance and systems change team is on the clock 24 7, spinning up and developing scalable, commercially viable, and ecosystem driven solutions and mechanisms for a complex and fluid humanitarian universe. Interested in being inspired? Tweet the team at DRC Innovation. Innovator, systems theorist, contrarian, complexity economist, and realist are just some of the words that describe my next guest, William Hines, head of the New Approaches to Economic Challenges Unit at OECD, based out of Paris, France. William, welcome. Uh, Thanks, Adam. So let me kick this off with my first question. Recently, your team released a paper in September titled Beyond Growth Towards a New Economic Approach which suggested that economics and specifically neoclassical as a discipline may not be fit for purpose. That is for today's intensely interconnected world. Could you perhaps walk us through your own personal journey that inspired your current thinking and the work that you're doing at OECD?
0: Sure. Well, um, where I started uh, was basically in developing countries and really as part of the, uh, the World Trade Organization, and then at OECD, I was part of a program called Aid for Trade. And basically that was about trying to help developing countries build capacities, institutional infrastructural, to integrate into the global economy and to really benefit from globalization. And uh, I guess that was an early lesson into an understanding of how the global economy works and, uh, in particular, how the world is extremely interconnected now. And we see this in all its benefits in terms of uh, international trade and services, in the diffusion of technology, and uh, in all sorts of goods, knowledge, uh, and other things. We also see it in, in terms of downsides, in terms of uh, pandemics, which uh, cross borders, and that's a current consideration and concern we all have. Uh, but also that shocks which originate in one country can now spread globally, whether that's financial shocks, economic shocks, or social and political shocks. And uh, so I started thinking a lot about the complexity of the global economy. And that's something that the OECD as an institution, which uh, really focuses on developing better policies for better lives, we really started thinking about this. Um, of course, it's part of our overall mandate, but the global financial crisis was really a a shock. Although the economies generally have recovered from that shock, economics as a discipline and as a guide to policymaking uh, really hasn't. And I think there's still a lot of questions about how well economics as a discipline understands the complexity and interconnectedness of our global economy. And um, we set up the new approaches to economic challenges initiative in 2012 Uh, and it was basically to learn or to distill the lessons of the global financial crisis, to upgrade our capabilities in terms of the tools, techniques, concepts and narratives that we have to understand the economy and then in a second step to devise the policies that would best serve that understanding. So that's where Nike came from and I've been part of Nike since 2014. And in an initial phase, we were very much in diagnosing what the problems are, uh, why analytical frameworks didn't really capture the underlying vulnerabilities that existed in our economy, the frailty within the financial system, and the way in which all these different systems are networked. Uh, For instance, what was essentially a financial shock became an economic crisis which spilled over into the social and political realm and then Double back into the economic system uh, through limiting the the choices and the potential for changing policies. Uh, so it's this interconnected system that Nike has really been focusing on. And um, this this first stage of Nike was um, really focused on the analytical shortcomings. So the way that economists tended to think about the economy was that it was a closed equilibrium system, that it had the natural tendency to be self-stabilizing. It might get knocked off track, but it will eventually gravitate back to some sort of steady state or equilibrium. And that's a very reassuring uh, model or way of understanding an economy. But I think what we're seeing more and more is that, in fact, the economy is really a complex adaptive system. It's something that continually evolves and changes and reorganizes And so the policy uh, approach that we might have is not simply just removing frictions and having structural reforms which will make the market work better, uh, true flexibility in labour markets or competition in product markets or functioning financial markets. That agenda is too narrow in that even if you do this and improve the efficiency of the market, it's not that you're necessarily going to solve your economic problems. And we need to think about the social implications of all this and also the environmental. Uh, and that increasingly is a concern that we have. Uh, how can we devise an economic model which um, is producing results which are good for the economy but also are benefiting all or most and them within our ecological limits? So this is really the challenge that uh, Nike is about. We need to upgrade the tools and techniques that we use and look more beyond this general equilibrium framework and to what the tools of complexity, the tools of physics and econophysics can give us. Uh, things like agent-based modeling, uh, network models. Uh, what can big data contribute to these discussions, as well as machine learning and different ways of analyzing all these uh, all this new data and information. And what we hope to develop through all this is a uh, new approach, a new approach which is um, based on better analytics, but also a narrative of economic growth and progress, which is, goes beyond just growth itself and beyond GDP, but one which looks at how the, the economy interacts with these other systems and how we can manage these interconnections and manage this complex economic system. uh, And maybe not necessarily focus so much on efficiency of the market, but on the resilience of these structures and systems. And I think if the 20th century was about competition and market forces, then the 21st century with the problems we face and the challenges that we have, it's going to have to be more about managing these complex systems and focusing on buffers, safeguards, and resilience. And this is really informed by more scientific view of how complex systems behave, that if we try to optimize our economic system, and that's essentially what economists are always trying to do, uh, they're trying to increase productivity, increase innovation, increase growth. But that can effectively destabilize different elements of a system. So we need to think more about the the buffers, safeguards and resilience. And I think this is ultimately a major lesson of the global financial crisis.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. This notion that greater efficiency can actually be a destabilizing factor and it doesn't necessarily solve social or humanitarian or environmental issues. I think is really nuanced and, and and really interesting because a lot of economists don't talk this way. And that's the real value would be able to bring in individuals like yourself into conversations like this, because humanitarian organizations don't actually employ or have on staff economists, which brings me to to my next question. So back when I was a global macro trader for a hedge fund, I worked on agent based modeling and complexity theory to forecast macro trends. I think what was really hard to anticipate or account for, at least for me, was the role of the state as it changes and the impact this has on stakeholder dynamics, both domestically and internationally. So I went to ResearchGate and pulled your article from 2013, which looked at economic interconnectivity between Ireland and the United Kingdom. And I'm wondering, with your research in mind, if you can talk about inclusion, resiliency, and the future of institutions as the state changes. This could be digital, a regime, or even a complete disintegration of a fragile state, maybe due to climate or or conflict.
0: Right. Um, okay, you're taking me back there with that one. Um, so, yeah, I wrote a paper in, in uh, 2012, 2013 about... Uh, ireland in as part of the united kingdom and um really trying to answer the question of did it make sense economically for ireland to be separate from the uk and to do that i looked at various different interconnections between ireland and and the uk and how that evolved over the twi- uh, over the 19th century and into the 20th century that's pretty easy to do in the uh um, the the role of the state is very minimal and there is trade but it's um, on a, a very limited number of goods and you basically have essentially a two-sector economy so you have manufacturers and you have agricultural goods so it was relatively simple to look at the fiscal relations and the extent to which uh, Ireland paid in to the imperial treasury in terms of taxes and the benefits it, it got out which were in the 19th century quite limited um, because again there's no real social security or social services and spending around things like um, defense is a relatively minor issue so um, I think the what this research showed is that uh, gradually as the role of the state changed in the late 19th century and early 20th century that there were more, there was more liberal legislation passed to, for instance, give uh, the pension in I think 1907. Uh, this changed the fiscal relations um, between Ireland and the UK. And the argument that the Irish had always done had made was that uh, Ireland was overtaxed um, in the in the 19th century, and uh, this is this is a difficult. Claim to substantiate because of the nature of taxes. Uh, most of the taxes were in the form of customs and excise. And as Gladstone said, uh, the Irish had the ability to untax themselves by essentially not uh, consuming the goods which in Victorian considered to be um, things that we should discourage uh, things like um, whiskey and uh, spirits, etc. Um, even, I think, tea was also subject to uh, customs and excise. And um, whereas liberal reforms of the late 19th century tended to reduce the tax burden on uh, various types of alcohol that were consumed by the industrial workers in the north, uh, like um, beer, etc. The taxes on the products which the Irish tended to consume a lot more of, uh, like spirits, remained high. Uh, So this was effectively an overtaxation issue in that, based on Ireland's ability to pay, we paid certainly a a large proportion of of taxation, Uh, though income tax wasn't extended to the Irish until much later uh, than the rest of the UK. Um, The the First World War, of course, changes everything as well from a fiscal point of view because you have uh, the expenditure on the war and then eventually the war debt which uh, again was a major consideration but my claim is that if you look at all these interconnections the um, it probably made a lot less sense for Ireland to be independent of the UK when it actually became independent Uh, and that the, the fiscal relations had actually improved to on Irish terms because of these expanding social programs and the changing nature of the taxation system and because trade relations had expanded and there was quite a degree of interdependence in terms of trade. And back then, of course, the UK was the majority, uh, the biggest market for Irish goods as it remains today. Uh, and so um, the, the story is one of interconnection and economic benefits, but there is a whole political discussion about why Ireland wants to be independent. And it's, you can see echoes of this today in, in Brexit discussions and I'm sure now, after yesterday's election, there'll be more talk about a united Ireland. Um, but in an interconnected world, I think it makes the cost of being a small country are, um, are a lot less. And unfortunately for an independent Ireland, we are facing into a time of international disintegration in the 1920s and 30s. And this drove up the costs of independence. And eventually we also had an economic war with the UK, which added to the cost And this um, This harmed the the Irish economy and people like Niall Ferguson would argue that it's only after the Ireland as an economy embraced or re-embraced the economic ideas behind the the British uh, Empire that it eventually took off as an economy. Uh, Not that I necessarily subscribe to that. Yeah, and I'm just interested how that influenced
1: some of your thought about different systems, different economies. Uh, today, and may, maybe thinking about migrants and migration and, and how that sort of influences decisions at an institutional level. And, and, mm. and if you can,
0: if you, is there any kind of parallels that, that you might be able to draw from there? Yeah, well, I, I think one of my big takeaways from it is just the interaction of different systems. And you may have a functioning economic system, and there may be a logic and a rationale for how we think. The economic system might function better, but there's also a a political system which interacts with that. And, um, you know, it's in a sense, it's like the trilemma that uh, Danny Roderick outlined, that um, in a globalized economy, we do have and we do need to think about economic globalization, the nation state and democracy. And uh, you can have two of the three, according to his trilemma. And uh, I think that's that's true. And I think that plays out when we think about trade and when we think about migration, that um, you can have a strong nation state and interconnection with the global economy, but that is going to lead to decisions which maybe the people won't agree with because you're going to have to maybe have declining industries which will go out of business and create dislocation and unemployment. Um, Migration as well is very disruptive but it's necessary for the functioning of labor markets, for overcoming graying economies and demographics. And so from an economic standpoint, migration and inward flows of migration are very positive things. You get new skills, knowledge, uh, business opportunities, entrepreneurship. These are all great possibilities, but politically, this can lead to a backlash. And so you can have strong government and strong interconnection and globalization, But we have to manage that with um, democracy. And uh, just in the Financial Times today, there was an article about green growth and whether, again, the transition to a green economy was really consistent with uh, democracy and whether people would willingly vote for the type of sacrifice in terms of air travel or uh, food production and consumption that would be required to really embrace this or more expensive energy prices, et cetera. So I think the the Irish case uh, in the UK was just another example of how all these systems are interconnected and the interplay has to be really managed and understood. And democracy is really tough because it leads to some quite dramatic trade-offs. And while economic logic and reason has its place, it really has to be managed in the context of what people want and uh, what they're willing to vote for. In
1: fact, there's a whole industry around understanding these trade-offs, and politicians pay a lot of money to data scientists to crunch these numbers, which kind of leads me um, into the topic of consensus building and my next question. So given the number of bilateral and multilateral stakeholders that you and your colleagues interact with on the back of the formidable task of changing mindsets around the prevailing economic paradigms, I'm guessing consensus building would be one of your superpowers. So how do you convince policymakers who may want significant evidence-based data and analysis that experimental thinking and economic adaptability is not only necessary, but really one of the best ways to understand future systemic risk?
0: Yeah, well, that's certainly our, that's what we're attempting to do. It's, um, it's not the greatest environment right now for forging any sort of multilateral consensus. Um, And even within the membership of the OECD, which in theory is uh, somewhat like-minded, there are considerable divisions on issues like trade and on climate policy. Uh, And even on inclusiveness, it's uh, the idea of proposing and looking at solutions to the inequality problem. It's not that there's a consensus on these things. So all these problems are getting worse. And uh, one thing we're trying to do in Nike is... um, Highlight the just the the way in which all these uh, problems are also interconnected, and so this is problematic because uh, they tend to compound each other. And I was sort of hinting at that in my last answer that um, again, if you if you think about the crisis of legitimacy or the populism within the political system, this um, the social discord and social breakdown makes it almost impossible to tackle. Big economic questions, and uh, never mind environmental ones, where people perceive that there's going to be a loss in competitors, and it's also the the dynamic of this rich country emerging economy uh, forces within the global economy, where there's a lot of concern about the rise of China, India, and so this is leading to a, a backlash. So this is all context. For talking about how do we change the narrative around how the economy works, how do we try to get policymakers to look at alternative solutions to the standard set of uh, structural policy reforms and standard narratives about competition, trade, uh, etc. Uh, so how are we doing it? Well, one thing we say, in Nike, is that we're, the objective is not to say – definitively this is what you should do we try not to be uh... too uh... definitive in in what we're saying we what we do is really provide a space where people can debate discuss critique uh... different ideas and propose alternatives and we should look at alternatives we should assess them we should see uh... what benefits potentially they bring um, but not to be too forceful in um, pushing these things because ultimately it's up to the national level policymakers to decide and to take from this program what they wish Uh, they may think that some of our work on modeling the economy or the complexity or networked Mm -hmm. impact of some of uh, these um, problems uh, or they might buy into the narrative that we need to change the way we think about the economy but really it's It's really up to them, and we we don't decide. We're not a committee of the OECD. We don't put an OECD stamp on this. We merely provide uh, alternatives. So we'd like to think that we can convince members uh, and convince those economists who are working in finance ministries and central banks. But oftentimes what we're talking about is essentially undermining their human capital. It's... um, and this is difficult, so people will not necessarily buy into ideas which uh, will ultimately cost them. Uh, and so all we can do is demonstrate the value of these tools, techniques, narratives. Uh, some of our members might say, well, you know, we see no evidence that um, a more systemic approach will give you better answers than a traditional economic approach. And uh, that's kind of a difficult one to, to counter because um, A lot of this is experimental. It's new. We don't have the same amount of experience as we have on traditional approaches. And so um, there's an inert conservatism and inertia that we have to try and get around. And what I've learned most, I think, is that you have to work with the people who are willing to work with you. Um, So it's finding people within ministries who are interested and working with them. And also in directorates and substantive committees and that might be a small band of people but ultimately they're the ones who can who believe in this and will eventually try to push it within their institutions we can't do much uh, in the OECD but it's all about connecting this new thinking new ideas to the networks and structures of policymaking and then hopefully over time it will become more accepted more widely used and then will gradually uh, transform policymaking. And you've probably heard before the idea, the the stages of paradigm shifts, that the the first stage is that everyone says it's, um, you know, this is nonsense. Uh, We don't need to change uh, the narrative or the paradigm. It it works. We're all trained in this and we should just uh, keep doing that. The second phase is um, that people say, okay, well, you may have a point, uh, but it's not practical. It's not feasible. And then the the third stage of paradigm shift is people say, well, it's what we were saying all along. Uh, So um, I don't think we're quite there yet. But gradually there there are more and more advocates. There's more and more uh, concern that um, some of the standard approaches and answers are not really getting the job done. And there's the urgency of the problem. Uh, You know, what I've noticed in the OECD is that the coronavirus outbreak has been very helpful in explaining why we need to take a, a complexity approach to the economy, because if you think about all the interconnections, uh, that essentially this disease probably emerged from the a human system, which was the food and agricultural system, a, a pathogen emerges there, then it, it filters through the transportation system and network and all the nodes of the, uh, the local and then the regional. And then the uh, global economy. Uh, it has an impact on value chains, which are starting now to shut down all across Asia, which has pronounced economic implications. And it leads to checks on transportation. It leads to all sorts of dislocation and dysfunction in the global economy. And it's a small shock that emerged from a city in China. Mm-hmm. And now it has global ramifications. Also, in terms of how we even explain the diffusion of the coronavirus, there we we look at agent-based approaches and diffusion models, and um, they're very useful and people accept that, that we need to use this type of model to explain how it spreads and what nodes it connects through and how even engineering uh, of transportation, but also physical buildings will slow or increase the spread of the disease. So if we look at those techniques for this sort of phenomenon, shouldn't we look at other complex phenomena like financial markets and uh, the economy? So I, I think this is, um, it's things like this th- that really show us that um, these type of phenomena, the dynamics around them, which traditional models do such a poor job on, mm-hmm. uh, they're not minor aspects of the system. They actually define the system. And so we need much more realistic, Uh, approaches to really understand them and understand just how the global economy will respond to these types of shocks. Right, right.
1: If I can pick up on that thought just a bit more, I'm thinking around just-in-time manufacturing and how it revolutionized the garment industry, especially at the low to medium end of the market with the likes of Zara and H&M growing exponentially, and data science and analytics really driving this evolution. So coming back to a point you just made a moment ago about how minor aspect, like a pathogen, is no longer noise that is eventually smoothed out over time, but rather is an element that defines our systems. Data science is just as in real-time manufacturing, supports our capability to visualize these defining moments. So on... The 9th of February, a couple days ago, the Telegram published an article where a G20 task force of leading currency experts explained that due to the surge in offshore dollar lending, which has exploded to around uh, $18 trillion, central banks have lost control of global liquidity and the IMF is essentially useless. So to your point, the state is changing as are the dynamics that define our systems. So as a final thought, could you comment on this?
0: Well, I think it's been, it's been the view for quite some time that the, the concern about another financial crisis is that uh, we don't seem to have the firepower, either in terms of monetary policy or fiscal policy, uh, that we've used up all the ammunition and we central banks will not have the ability to really intervene in a major way because quantitative easing is tapped out. And there is essentially a loss of control. There's also the changing technologies, which also raise questions about what sort of uh, financial system we're going to have. And uh, so we're entering a much more unstable period when the institutions that we rely on to provide the liquidity in the event of a financial shock may not have the capacity and the wherewithal to do that. And also the ability to provide stimulus in the event of a shock is also going to be uh, limited because essentially the, we, we haven't built up those buffers and those safeguards in the global economy. And so um, I think there rightfully is a lot of concern about how we might face up to another financial shock, um, given that the institutions that we have to provide that cover and to prop up the system are uh, in such a weak position.
1: Well, we're going to have to leave it there. William, thank you very much for your time. It's been it's been excellent having you on the podcast today. If you're interested in learning more about the work that William and his team are doing, you can pick up William's new book that's called Systemic Thinking for Policymaking, The Potential of Systems Analysis for Addressing Global Policy Changes in the 21st Century. It was published this month, February 2020. Again, William, thank you very much for your time.
0: Okay. Well, thanks very much, Ed. See you.
1: Thanks again for listening to Behind the Noise. This is episode four. If you don't know, now you know. The Danish Red Cross's award winning innovative finance and systems change team is on the clock 24 7, spinning up and developing scalable, commercially viable, and ecosystem driven solutions and mechanisms for a complex and fluid humanitarian universe. Interested in being inspired? Tweet the team at DRC Innovation.